This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Amon, Head of Strategy at European Cybercrime Center, better known as Europol. Philip has over 20 years of combined work experience and hands-on skills in cybersecurity and defense, in combating cybercrime, in policy and governance, in intelligence management, crypto analysis, digital forensics, and more. He's also a member of various prestigious institutions like the World Economic Forum and the European Union Agency for Network and Information Security. On top of all of this, he's also a regular keynote speaker and presenter. So we have a very, very well-versed subject matter expert in cybercrime here today with us. And this is only the short of it. Philip, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Really happy to speak to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Now, I've given the audience the short of it in terms of your background in cybersecurity. I'd like to know and better inform the audience about your journey overall. What was your journey through cybersecurity like? What brought you here to working with Europol and how is it now? That's a very interesting question. I think uh, just looking back, you know, as people who are way more famous than me and smarter than me, like uh, Steve Jobs, you know, so you look back and you can connect the dots. And I think for me, I was always fascinated working in international environments and working with different cultures and also ideally global issues. And which is why I rather early in my career joined, you know, various different international organizations and then working on different topics and then just, you know, really focused on, on cyber related issues, you know, policy issues, but also training, capacity building, cybersecurity, cyber crimes, cyber defense. And then, well, about eight and a half years ago, I joined uh, the European Cybercrime Center, part of Europol. And of course, our focus is really to support the EU member states, but also many of our non-EU partners with whom we have an operation agreement uh, that includes the US in combating cybercrime. So we're focusing on, you know, traditional cyber-dependent crime, ransomware attacks, DDoS attacks, but we also deal with payment fraud. We have a team dealing with the abuse of the dark web, and we have a team that deals with uh, combating child sexual abuse online. So yeah, for the last, like I said, eight and a half years, that has been sort of my main concern at EC3. And But it was really sort of, yeah, looking back, you know, I can also connect some of those dots and see how that was a journey that led me to where I am right now and really trying to help making cyberspace safer and more secure. It's an interesting journey to go from a strong interest in international affairs and then bring that into a more technical space. Where did that happen in your journey? Where was the pivot point? I think it really comes also with the organization and obviously the mandates of those various organizations. So previously, before joining Europol and EC3, I worked for the OEC, and OEC stands for Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, with a very interesting membership. The U.S. is uh, participating states, but also Russia 
And at the time, one of my colleagues worked on what we called confidence building measures in cyberspace, really. So very much a policy related, you know, mandate, if you will. So for me, that was hugely interesting to see that. But I think the point came where I thought, you know, it's, I think just based on my profile, how I work and how I see things, while I do like the strategic work and the thinking and the, the bigger concepts, I think uh, Europe and EC3 has been perfect because they really combine those two things. So what we do here is really in our support to member states, you know, we walk the talk, if you will. On the one hand, so we turn, you know, the threats, the risks that we see into actual action. But equally, we look at what's happening right now. What are new and emerging technologies? What are the challenges that we encounter? And how do we turn that into strategic advice, into policy advice, into, you know, informing this policymakers at EU level when they draft new legislation? You know, how can we turn that into capacity building activities, into prevention and awareness? You know, how do we leverage our, our network of partners? Uh, we currently have three advisory groups to again collectively address those threats and make it, uh, you know, increase cybersecurity and the resilience collectively. So I think that's really where, for me, that was definitely one of the key points to be able to work for an organization that really has this strong operational focus as well that uh, really allows you to actually put certain things into practice and really do something about uh, the risks and the problems that we see online. Informing legislative bodies has been no easy task in the States. And this is mainly because a lot of decision makers at that level are either just very ill-informed and perhaps just don't have enough knowledge about the technical space or otherwise have competing interests on their agendas. So there are other things that matter a bit more. And then depending on what committee they're a part of, what, you know, their interest is on their platform, they then get involved in it. But inevitably, technology is bleeding into every issue. So we have to really fix this thing called the knowledge gap here in the States. Are you noticing that during your involvement in international legislation discussions and so on? I think we do, but I'll, I don't see this as a point of criticism. I think I am not a lawyer, so drafting legislation, I think, will be a challenge for me because it's just not my area of expertise. So I think what we see is, given the complexity of the whole topic, the many different areas, you mentioned technology, but of course, you need to be an expert. You know, you can be an expert on, I don't know, 3G, 4G, 5G, 6G. You may be an expert on, you know, quantum computing, you may be an expert on IoT and, and hardware software. So I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yes, there is a gap, but it's not because people are ignorant, in my opinion, mm-hmm. or, you know, are not willing to learn. I think it's just so much content and complexity and in-depth expertise and understanding that you need in those areas. I think it's very hard to find one person. So, mm-hmm. so we see that definitely, but I think we also have, fortunately, those mechanisms where we're allowed to inform policymakers or we ask to inform policymakers because obviously as an EU agency, we're not, you know, we're not producing legislation, but sometimes we're being involved in the process just to make sure that we provide the operational, tactical, strategic, you know, viewpoint, boots on the ground, so to speak, to precisely fill that gap. And taking one step back, I think 
the best processes that I've seen in terms of developing legislation that is then fit for purpose and ideally also technology neutral. So, you know, we don't have to change it every other month, basically, is when when all those experts come together and have a, a respectful, fruitful, fact-based discussion. I think that's another important aspect. And that's something that we can typically bring to the table. You know, the facts, the reality, what we see, what's really happening, you know, what are the challenges? And then, you know, somebody who drafts legislation can then turn that into uh, proper legal language. But I think that's where I see sort of that's the sweet spot, so to speak, you know, when we involve everyone who needs to be involved. And yes, to your point, I fully agree, you know, that's a multi-stakeholder process and the different agendas, the different objectives. And yes, you know, we need to align them. And that's, in essence, how the UN works, how many international organizations work. And yes, there will be compromises. But uh, I think for me, then the key point is to ensure that, you know, we don't compromise on the core concepts and the core issues. And it's great that everyone's coming to the table with that mentality. I found this concept of international policing very interesting. And in such a way that I struggle to understand it from, I think, my limited point of view. But then I read a publication of yours that you shared with me and that you've co-authored titled The Cyber Blue Line and got to know a bit more about what that means. Would you mind giving the audience just a bit of information about the meaning of The Cyber Blue Line and some background into this publication? Because I would love to dig into it a bit. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So as part of my role, obviously, we need to understand and I, my teams and I, we try to understand, you know, the threats, what are the trends, where we're going to, you know, what are the future trends, looking at technology, but then also looking at sort of broader societal issues. And what we try to do with the Cyber Blue Line, which I co-authored with a good friend and one of our academic advisors, Professor Mary Aiken. And, you know, she initiated the project and we happily worked together and we got a director also to, you know, draft the forward. So the main the cyber blue line really is based on that concept that, you know, if you take the blue line as to represent law enforcement, you know, in the real world, you know, the thin blue line where we have limited resources to, you know, fight criminality, to establish order, to protect the victims you know, to protect communities, to implement community policing. And then I think that's fairly well established. You know, there's a social contract that, you know, as it conceptually has been, I think, more over than 200 years ago, where in our societies, we have this agreement between, you know, the population and, and law enforcement, if you will, to simplify things that, you know, you get protection, the law enforcement issues, safety and security, but also that means that in certain instances, you know, for instance, in the context of uh, a criminal investigation, you know, they may be, may have, well, they will have the legal right and based on the proper legal processes to infringe a bit on, you know, for instance, on on your right to privacy. So there is, it's a give and take really, if you will. And so our starting point was, well, we have a fairly well-established concept in the real world. Now, as we all move online, and our life moves online. And, you know, with that also criminals move online, which also means, you know, victims are then online. How do we police that online environment? Where do we draw the cyber blue line? Where do we establish order online? Mm. You know, who's to decide what, you know, needs to be done online? What kind of resources, what kind of profiles do we need? 
And I think this is where that position paper, that this is the big question or the narrative of that position paper, the cyber blue line, which obviously, you know, you can also download from the Europol website where we try to, you know, describe the concept, highlight some of the challenges, the issues that we see online, also the shortcomings, the gaps when it comes to policing the online world to the role of law enforcement online. And then the question, you know, how do we solve that? Who's responsible for that? Who takes the decisions and who can shape that role? And mm-hmm. and then eventually, where do we collectively draw that line in cyberspace? Well, that's something I'm going to ask you. <laughs> but I'll hold on that. I'll hold on to that for just a second to clarify on this gap you discussed. Protection governance gap is what you call it in your publication. What is the protection governance gap and why is cybersecurity not enough to protect it? So typically, you know, governance gap happens when you have different communities that need to work together and come together to regulate the space, you know, in this case, cyberspace, the online space. But because of that complexity and the fact that you have different communities with different responsibilities and mandates, some of them overlapping, some of them not overlapping, there ought to be gaps that are not covered by whatever multi-stakeholder governance model you have implemented. And that's what we see online. There there are certain gaps that have manifest themselves because of that, because you have uh, certain communities, well, including law enforcement, they have certain rights, but they also have limitations. Then you have other communities that, you know, decide what happens to the internet, you know, that define standards. And then you have, you know, the security industry that is mostly focused on how do we make you know the internet or service space safer? How do we increase our security? What are the principles? And all that in its entirety, you know, creates a very complex multi-stakeholder model. And what we see is that there are certain gaps that are not covered by any of those communities. So it really is many communities having shared responsibilities. And then typically what happens or can happen as a risk is that there are certain important aspects of that domain that are not being covered by the governance model. I hope I hope I was able to explain that, uh, at least my interpretation of, of the term. I think so. Yes, yes. What stands out there is that there is something inherently human about the cyberspace that requires governance. And it's not too difficult to understand that humans do need checks, balances, some level of surveillance. I don't mean this to be a you know, negative term, some level of surveillance to make sure that for the better good of everyone involved, the right course of action is happening and a lot of different decisions. So this protection governance gap is who really takes responsibility of that within that gap, that space, and what are the boundaries to draw, right? Right. I think the problem with surveillance is that it has a very a, a very negative connotation. And it also implies sort of an active action. And I think that's not how you know we or I would interpret, well, certainly not. That's certainly not Europol's role. And I wonder if that's also the role of law enforcement. I think mm-hmm. the way I would see it is that law enforcement needs to be in a position, you know, to protect communities online to go after criminals, because as you you know, pointed out, yes, you know, we are humans. And that also means that, you know, the the dark sites move online as well. And, and the dark uh, treats move on uh, online as well. And there will always be people who, you know, do 
bad things and abuse technology and uh, victimize uh, people. But I think the role of law enforcement is really to mitigate that risk to go after criminals, protect the rights of the victim, and be able to conduct uh, efficient and effective uh, investigations. And I think that's where we see also a lot of challenges that law enforcement, when it comes to the online world, does not have the same powers or possibilities that they would have in the offline world. And Mm -hmm. again, saying that this is actually an agreed concept, we're quite okay with the fact that you know, with a search warrant, law enforcement can enter somebody's uh, apartment or house and search for evidence, you know. When it comes to the online world, you know, law enforcement getting into your computer and doing, you know, based on a legal warrant, search warrant, the same thing. The different challenges, the different perceptions also when it comes to that. And I'm really making that point because I think, you know, there's a lot of arguments against law enforcement that it's all about surveillance and 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 honestly, I think that's definitely not the job of law enforcement. And that's what I think, if anything, unless there is a specific case in the context of a criminal investigation, there's a, you know, a legal warrant, there's a legal basis that you could do that. And typically that would not be the role of law enforcement. And I think that's maybe that's also part of the challenge that, you know, we need to better clarify what those roles are and, and how we can work together to, you know, also being a safe where we all feel safe and secure. And, you know, we're not afraid actually of online surveillance and, and mass and bulk surveillance and those kind of things. These, th- this need for definition and the need to draw boundaries, are all of these topics being discussed in Europol and otherwise in the international space focused on cyber and cybersecurity from your experience? Are they being discussed and in great length? Absolutely. In fact, we currently have a process at the UN level where the UN is developing a new cybercrime convention. And a big part and challenge of this is actually to define, you know, what is cybercrime? Is it cyber dependent crime? Is it also cyber facilitated crime? You know, how do we define cybercrime internationally? And that's, as you probably know, it has a lot of, comes with a lot of challenges because there are different views, there are different cultures, there are different perceptions, there's different legal frameworks, but that's currently an ongoing discussion at the UN level. And uh, I think in my mind, a very, very important one, because as a community, as you know, the UN, we need to ensure that we come up with a convention. I think that there's a very tight time plan. I think we're talking about the end of 2024, where there's supposed to be a final draft of that new convention, the Cybercrime Convention. And I think it's important to be part of the discussion to ensure that collectively we come up with something that is, again, fit for purpose. But, you know, to your point, that's a big part of the discussions. And I think from what I know, uh, because we're not directly involved in those discussions as an EU agency, it comes, of course, with challenges because there are different views and interpretations. But yeah, it's happening. It's happening at UN level. It's also happening at at uh, EU level. I think internationally, that's uh, certainly one of the key challenges is to, you know, define things in a way that they can sort of easily transfer it across different borders and jurisdictions, you know, to ensure that something that is illegal in your country is also illegal in another country. And, you know, how do you exchange evidence and how do you collaborate across borders, of course, requires a common understanding and a common definition of those concepts. And I think one of the existing frameworks that we have, which I think has been hugely successful, is, of course, the Budapest Convention. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, is uh, well, not a not, but um, this is the only uh, quasi-international framework that I'm aware of 
that uh, helps you to, you know, have, provides a legal basis to internationally combat cybercrime. A laudable one at that for the listeners here. The Budapest Convention is also known as the Cybercrime Treaty called the Council of European Convention on Cybercrime. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, adopted by 67 countries with a goal to approach cybercrime from a global standpoint. There have been a few things, Philip, that have occurred with the Budapest Convention at hand, defining criminal offenses for cybercrimes, one, and then otherwise defining the limits of individual privacy rights. Well, a lot of the controversy over the years around Budapest Convention, as well as a, a lot of the successes around it, find their way as precedents into this this new legislation? I think from an EU perspective, that's obviously, I mean, I think the EU is quite clear on that. I mean, we are very happy with the Budapest Convention. And as part of those discussions at UN level, of course, one of the objectives, but also challenges will be to ensure that we complement Budapest. We don't, you know, create any conflict or overlap and to the extent possible, actually transfer those principles into the new convention, again, to the extent possible, or then and or ensure that there is complementarity so that, you know, those, the convention and the Buddha, you know, the two conventions that really, you know, work together side by side, but especially for, you know, the EU, I think one of the core objectives would be, and again, I'm not part of the, the team that, you know, this is the commission we're not part of the discussions, but from what I, you know, my take on it is based on the information I have, is it, it is a big part of it. Is big part of the challenge is to ensure that uh, we maintain those fundamental points that have been enshrined into into the Budapest Convention and keep them also in the UN Convention. But then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we spoke about uh, multi-stakeholder, and that's just the reality that you know, comes with bodies like the UN or any other internationalization that you have those different views and objectives. And it's all about uh, compromising and finding, you know, the right mix without really compromising on your core objectives and values. But uh, that's really up to diplomats, you know, and uh, yeah. admire them for their, for their work and, and, and skills. Expert work in yeah. negotiation, in diplomacy. And humility. So I, I really do look forward to it. I'm hopeful. So this is great to hear that you have some insight into it and we can share it with listeners as well. I'd like to, I mean, there's so much more to say about that, but I'd like to return back to the cyber blue line and focus in on two other terms mentioned. Let's start with one of them, safety tech. Very interesting. What is it? What is the goal? And is it deployed now? So that's an interesting one. Again, you know, my co-author and friend and uh, our academic advisor, Professor Maria Aiken, I think would be, she would be a better place to really explain that concept in depth because she was also behind one of the uh, initial reports where that was being proposed as, if you will, a new domain. You know, we have other domains like fintech and and you know, other industry areas that focus around a certain concept or a certain domain. And safety tech really, at its core, goes beyond cybersecurity. So, you know, really, if you take cybersecurity, you could simplify that and say, well, it's about bits and bytes. You know, it's about, you know, hardware and software. How do we harden that? How do we make it, you know, more secure? How do we prevent people from, you know, breaking into IT systems, stealing data, 
And then we have well-established concepts around that, you know, security by design, um, uh, privacy by design, and by default, and, you know, the best practices around that. But really, I think what safety tech does, it's about putting the human being into the center of your development. So when you design and develop new software and hardware, you know, have a humanistic approach to it. Say, well, you know, how will people interact with that? What's the potential for harm? You know, how do we minimize, mitigate the abuse of that technology? What kind of impact will that have on people? And how do we already proactively, you know, foresee that and, you know, work on that, prevent that and uh, make sure that there's, you know, safety nets and ways of mitigating those potential risks and harms online. So it, it is about that next step saying, well, safety tech is really about us human beings, how we interact with technology how we use technology, the kind of impact that uh, technology has on our daily lives. You know, as as I said before, our lives move online and we become almost digital, right? And we are online all the time, you know. I'm old enough, you know, when I got online, you had two computers screaming at each other and it was more of an exception. And now I think the default is that we're being connected. You know, we have devices in our bodies that are connected with potentially medical devices in our bodies that are connected. So really, you know, the line between the real life and the online life, you know, starts to blur more and more. So I think it is hugely important to then say, well, you know, maybe we have to reset our approach a little bit and say, you know, let's not just focus on the tools, the software, the bells and whistles and whatever new technology we can develop. But, you know, think about how we interact with that, what kind of impact that will have on us as human beings, on societies, you know, how we discuss things, how we, you know, learn, how we communicate with each other. So, you know, that's my take on it. That's my understanding. But again, I'm pretty sure that Mary, she would have, you know, way more information on that. But uh, it's something that that we support. And I think it's almost, if you will, the next logical step, you know, uh, yes, we're still struggling with cybersecurity and concepts like cyber resilience. But I think when you go, especially from cyber resilience to cyber safety, I think there's a strong connection, you know, uh, because the question is also how do we, how do we educate ourselves? How do we educate uh, young people to be safe online, to be more resilient, you know, and equally work with industry in particular in developing, you know, technology that is safe, uh, not just secure, but mm. also safe. Hence, you know, hashtag safety tech, if you will. Yeah, this is so necessary. There are a ton of apps. Yeah that uh, even I'm using every day, which don't carry any kind of privacy or security message, I think, uh, outwardly. They serve their purpose. Uh, TikTok serves its purpose here. Instagram serves its purpose there. Facebook serves its purpose there. Uh, I'll see ads for a ton of things that matter to me as a consumer, but really not much that matter to me as a consumer requiring safety. It's totally right. different than just yeah. another product. That, that I think will be revolutionary for security awareness and education. It takes security and awareness and education, all three concepts, out of just the security function and into the real world where it's necessary so that it can be important inside of an organization. So the onus then is, is really on, on private enterprises, governments too, but private enterprises to say, hey, even if we're not a security technology company, we should be talking about this. Yeah, I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's, uh, well, maybe I hope that's not making your 
you know, maybe we should disagree more for your podcast, but, you know, obviously. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, you know, from an industry perspective, I think you can really use that as a, as a selling point, you know, and I think we're still at a stage where we select, you know, based on price, you know, that still is very often when it comes to technology, the main factor, you know, and I'd rather, you know, I go for the five euro webcam instead of the 10 euro webcam or whatever, you know, the prices are. But typically, you know, if you have a product that is more secure and also has been designed with safety, you know, from the get go, you know, it's going to be pricier. I mean, because there's more resources that, you know, companies have invested in, in into developing those products. So I think if you turn this around and say, well, actually, that's a selling point, isn't it? You know, if I say, well, you know, you buy this product and I can tell you, you know, it's been certified, you know, it's security, safety by design, privacy by design, you know, it's been designed to ensure that it's as safe as possible and as secure as possible. I think that's actually a selling point. And that's what we see as well. And again, Mary, I think she has a more in-depth insight into the uptake of that concept, but we see a lot of you know, UK also in Germany, a lot of companies are really interested in that and see this as a actually, you know, advantage, a competitive advantage. And I think that's the way it should be, right? Just like with, you know, we've seen this in many other industry where if you purchase a car or some vehicle, I mean, safety and security, you know, these are main requirements that you will be looking for. You know, you don't want to drive a car that after one hour, the wheel pops off or something like that. I mean, and you know that because, you know, there are regulations, there are tests, the quality assurance frameworks in place. And I think we need something along those lines also for software and hardware products. Totally. And too many organizations wait for people to care instead mm-hmm. of going for a pound of cure and shifting instead to slow doses, not even not even just a bit slow doses of prevention. (laughs) I think organizations can push the message. We need not wait for all influencers. The whole world that is online, each single individual is already an influencer. Whether they like it or not, their habits online make them influencers because they are promoting some kind of message, some kind of action. Everyone is an influencer online. Now, to what degree, of course, That depends on perception, but we don't have to wait for the influencer with incredible amount of prominence and capital to get compromised to say that cybersecurity is necessary for the individual. Instead, organizations, government bodies, everyone, and this is my opinion, can just start to promote it. Just start to promote it. If people are so quick to take in the illusory truth bias something that may not be true, maybe false, but they see it enough and they'll believe it. Confirmation bias, even if they're so quick to do that, take a positive spin. You know, it's a positive bias. This matters to you. This matters to you. <laughs> and enough of that will make it common. Absolutely. And again, as I said, I think it's also industry does and will play a big part in this. And I think uh, to change their business model a little bit or to let them see that there is actually quite some I believe some merit and, and value in changing that business model and not going after, you know, the cheapest product and mm-hmm. you know, time to market, take that as one of the main driving factors, but, you know, rather have a product that when it hits the market is safe and secure to use. Uh, like we have it in other domains, you know, I think that, you know, I agree with you. That's the message that we should be promoting, but also that's then the decisions that we should be taking. Uh, when we purchase new products, you know, look for those that 
come with that uh, quality mark if we can recognize it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're on the same page often, even outside of this call and our other calls. We often tend to agree on a lot of things. So it's all right for the users to hear that and also for customers to hear that and for listeners to hear that and perhaps agree. Depends what you want to consider yourself. If you hear that and you agree, that's great. Let's discuss cybercrime. That's why we're here today. Right. That's why all of this exists in general. That's why we work in what we do. Let's talk about this concept I mentioned as one of the two, and this is the second one, offender convergence of dark web settings. That's a mouthful. And I saw it in your publication and thought to myself, I have to ask, I have to ask, what is this? It's a great lead into a lot of what we're going to discuss here in the short time we have left on cybercrime. So it is a very interesting concept in real life. That means that offenders would typically gather in certain places, you know, where they feel secure, where they feel safe and secure. Well, they will, you know, exchange information where they will develop new quote unquote projects. And we see the same happening online. You know, there are online fora, there are online fora on the surface, but also on the dark web where offenders come together and, you know, create online communities where they sometimes also normalize certain deviant or criminal behavior because, you know, that's certain one of the differences that we see to, you know, the real world where sometimes it might be hard or difficult to find like-minded offenders or criminals. Whereas online, unfortunately, that's much easier. And, and that also means in some areas, it actually normalizes the criminal behavior. But it's really all about criminals coming together, having what they consider to be a, a safe environment where they can uh, communicate safely, where they can exchange information, where they can plan criminal activities, um, where they can forge new alliances and uh, create those connections. So that's really what it means. And, you know, we know this is a very common concept in, in the real life. And we see that now being copied online. And uh, sometimes, you know, it also scales in the sense that, you know, you can have way more offenders or criminals coming together online as compared to a real life setting, you know. So I hope that explained the concept a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like our ability to collaborate on the internet, so be it as well for different segments of the population, cyber criminals. Exactly. exactly. And, and what you see that there's also, you know, what we refer to uh, to the abuse of technology. So, you know, what we use and, and, you know, tech encryption, hugely important, you know, cornerstone of the internet. But of course, criminals, you know, also use and abuse encryption and they use and abuse other technology. Take Tor, you know, as a as a, one of the most popular darknet platforms or anonymity layer platforms, you know, not illegal per se, but of course you have criminals abusing those anonymity features. So, yeah, the things that help us and that we, you know, that we want equally, you know, criminals use and abuse that as well. And with that come, you know, we, we see a lot of challenges that come with that. In, in that space, talking about the challenges for us, they're created because of the ingenuity and the factor of innovation for cyber criminals in this entirely new and growing space. Based on your experience and some of the patterns you might recognize as well in international affairs and international crime, what do you project as 
the future of the cybercrime underground within the next one to five years? Well, first of all, I think what's the status quo? You know, we have we have a situation mm. where we have a well functioning and mature underground economy, which we often refer to as crime as a service, meaning we have we have an underground economy that provides the services and tools required to commit cybercrime. So and it's, you know, we have groups, criminal groups focusing on certain specific areas. Again, they are also becoming experts in certain fields. And they work together, they collaborate online, you know, they come together in those spaces that we mentioned. So that's the reality, which also means that we see a convergence of actors, meaning, you know, you don't have to be a cyber you could be a hacktivist, you could be a state-sponsored, state-condoned actor. You may use similar with the same tools and services that are available online. So I think that's the reality. Um, yes, you know, we see, to your point, I think a lot of innovation. We see criminals being very adaptive and agile. You know, we've seen that during the COVID pandemic, you know, being, you know, very quickly adapting their spam campaigns to the COVID narrative and uh, exploiting the fact that people were working from home and, you know, potentially being more vulnerable because they didn't have the same security measures at home as compared to, you know, an office environment. But it also, in many instances, it doesn't have to be that innovative because a lot of things, because of a lack of security by design, perhaps of design, a lot of things still work. You know, things that worked five, 10 years ago still work. So we also have this huge tech legacy and, and cybersecurity legacy, if you will, where criminals can still use things and abuse things that have been around for years and are well known. So I think mm-hmm. that's really the reality. It's a very complex, very diverse environment that we, you know, we all live in. So looking at the future, and I think, you know, those are the kind of examples that we do and topics that we look into, like artificial intelligence. We published a report about, I think, one and a half years ago on the malicious uses and abuses of artificial intelligence. Where we said, what do we see already now in terms of criminals using artificial intelligence to improve their attacks or abusing or trying to bypass artificially AI-based defense systems? Well, what do we see already now and what will the future look like? And it's a you know somber report, but we have a lot of recommendations. Again, you know you need to be aware of the risks to protect those systems and build very robust AI systems. And we see things like deepfakes, you know, already being abused for certain types of scams like CEO fraud. So if I look at the future, I think for the first sort of one or two years, I don't really see huge changes there. I think you know uh, ransomware will still remain one of the top threats. You know going way beyond the financial damage, you know, really causing global cybersecurity risks with attacks against critical infrastructure, hospitals and the like. But I think what we really change and what is sort of slowly changing is that the level of automation. I think when it comes to cyber defense, that's the way to go, but also for attackers, that's the way to go. So, I mean, that would be my prediction, uh, you know, four or five, you know, even six, seven years from now that a lot of the attacks and the defense will actually be automated. It will be AI systems, you know, fighting against each other, you know, criminals abusing AI to find new vulnerabilities, to find, you know, ways to get into your system. And on the other side, you will have AI systems trying to predict those uh, attacks and defending them. So I think I see sort of an automated cybercrime future, as it were, with all the challenges that come with it, you know, and, and maybe new ways of, you know, we may... AI for crime as a service and those kind of things will pop up if they're not already exist. But I think automation will definitely be a huge part of it, combined with the fact that more and more 
parts and aspects of our life will go online in that sort of entirety. I think, you know, huge opportunities, but also huge risks. But I, I strongly believe that we will see evolutions and adaptations of existing models. But for me, one of the key changes will be automation and, and the use and abuse of artificial intelligence and all the variation of those systems. Mm, so the efficiency and the speed of crime, I call this algorithmic outwitting. It already they is gave you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's already I happened. I could have condensed my, you know, five minutes speech. To, <laughs> you know, not huge. Yeah, I think that's, uh, we're in the hands of algorithms already. And I think that will not change. The outwitting part, it's already happening. We see it happen on consumer applications when people try to buy things that are low supply, high demand in greater bulk by creating bots, uh, just bots generally. And then also certain social media platforms with brand influencers outwitting algorithms to find their way to more prominence already happening. Small little ways, little cheat codes that turn into crime. Everything is, you know, very interesting path. Algorithmic outwitting is what you see. All right. Well, I agree. It's already happening. It's already happening. I've got one last question for you over here. To succeed at combating cybercrime, what are three pieces of actionable advice you'd give to security practitioners listening in and then perhaps an audience of your choice? Well, I think has been set before, you know, cybercrime international borderless. So I think we also need to have that international response to it. Now, one of the key points, maybe two or three points. The first point is, I think we can all do something about it. And I think, and that is really important to me because when we talk about complicated issues and processes at a UN level and artificial intelligence, you or one may think, well, what can I do about this? You know, I'm just a little part of this. I think Turn us around. I think there's a lot you and I can do, everybody can do to make their life more secure and safer online, their online life uh, more secure and safer. And, and their, you know, strong passwords, you know, multi-factor authentication, not reusing your passwords, minimizing your, your online social footprint. So there are a lot of good recommendations and things that you can do to increase collectively cybersecurity. So I think that's important as well. You know, we're not just bystanders. We're all part of this and we can all do our part every day. And I think that's important for, I think, cybersecurity practitioners. I think for me, obviously, it's such a broad field now. But for me, one of the key points is, and I have to say the word, you know, collaboration and sharing information. I think this is nothing new. It's been, you know, this is the thoughts and prayers of the cybersecurity community, as somebody mm-hmm. once uh, once said. I think it's really about changing the mindset and actually putting that in practice and saying, how do we get from the idea of that general recommendation? How do we implement that? So from a cybersecurity perspective, it's all about creating your communities, your networks, working across different communities, you know, seeing law enforcement as a key partner in that, but also the search, CSERT community, industry, you know, civil society, you know, the privacy community. If we all come together, I think that's where we need to be. We need to have those interfaces. We need to have that communications and that, that interactions. And yes, may be painful. And yes, you know, it may take time sometimes to come to an agreement, but we need to have the open channels and that trust relationships. And sometimes not even trust, you know, sometimes we need to work together where there's no trust, but we need to have that networked approach. And I think that's key. So 
if you're new in that area or if you, you know, seasoned professional, I think, you know, see if you have those networks and also see more importantly, where are the barriers? Where are the obstacles? You know, where can I make an effort to reach out to another community and, you know, create that connection? Because that's what it is. And, you know, it's the other side. Honestly, they don't have those issues. They work across different jurisdictions, different borders. You know, they don't even need trust. They Some of those group members, they've never met in real life and they still work together. And I think we need to have sort of the similar mind and similar mindset to be successful. And ideally, and I think that to me would also be a main goal to switch from something that is more reactive to proactive. So meaning, you know, if I take also researchers, I think that's another important community to also work with them to understand, you know, where's the journey going and how can we predict some of the things that uh, may happen, you know, in two, three years from now? And how can we already, you know, implement things, measures today to prevent that from happening in the future? Gosh, it feels like, a, you know, a great speech. <laughs> <laughs> great points of collaboration to work on, though. And I'm just happy you mentioned all of them. I think this is a wonderful place to leave our listeners thinking. And this is all the time we'll have to cover our discussion today. But before we end it fully, is there anywhere our listeners can go to keep up with you? Well, definitely on our website, you know, Google for Europols, a lot of the reports that I mentioned are available on our website. I'm on Twitter. So, you know, if you look me up, uh, but uh, I think really Europol, that's the, it's a very rich resource. So, you know, please do connect. There's a lot, by the way, we didn't really talk about prevention and awareness. So we do a lot of work in the area of prevention and awareness. And there's a lot of material on our website on different topics in different languages that you can use for free. We also have one project called Trace an Object, where everyone, every listener, you and I, everyone can become a Europol agent by helping us identify victims of child abuse. You know, it could be part of a T-shirt. It could be the room of a hotel where, you know, we hit a wall, we can't geolocate the picture, the video, and we post those things online on our website and you can go there and help help us identify. So there's many ways also to interact. Wow. With it. Really go to our website, please. And, you know, look up the material, but also help us in our work. Fantastic way to engage people. This is This is an actionable path to your recommendation for everyone listening in. So please feel free to visit that site and become a part of the wider cybersecurity world uh, doing your part here. Thank you for sharing that, Philip. And I'd like to thank you all again for tuning in. This was a great conversation and I've really enjoyed some of the listener engagement on LinkedIn recently and encourage all of you to start a conversation with us. Let us know what you thought about this episode, what you'd like to hear more about. You can engage in conversation with Philip. I'm sure of it about some of the concepts we've discussed here and then myself as well. I'm always happy to talk. With that, have a wonderful day all. Thank you again, Philip. Thank you. And absolutely. And see you all next time here at the Future of Cybercrime podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.